Howdy, howdy, everyone. This is Volts for September 22nd, 2023. The Campaign for Public Power in Maine. I'm your host, David Roberts. Maine's two big investor-owned power utilities, Central Maine Power and Versant Power, are not very popular. In fact, they boast among the lowest consumer satisfaction scores of any utilities in the country, perhaps because their customers face some of the nation's highest rates, suffer more and longer outages than average Americans, and pay more to connect rooftop solar than ratepayers in almost any other state. This November, Mainers will vote on a radical alternative, a ballot measure to replace the two for-profit utilities with a single non-profit utility that would be called Pine Tree Power. Maine and many other states already have lots of small non-profit municipal utilities, but this would mark the first time a whole state with existing private utilities decided to make them public en masse. Naturally, the utilities are opposed and have dumped $27 million and counting into a campaign to crush the measure. Supporters have mustered just under $1 million. To discuss this David versus Goliath fight, I contacted one of its champions, Democratic State Senator Nicole Grohowski. We discussed why she thinks a public utility would perform better, what it would do for clean energy, how it would be governed, and what other states can learn from the effort. With no further ado, Maine State Senator Nicole Grohowski, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you today. I am super excited to talk about this issue. There's a lot of ins and outs I want to cover, but maybe let's just start with a brief history of this thing. So the idea here is, as I said in the intro, to replace Maine's two big investor-owned utilities, Central Maine Power and Versant Power, with a single um, publicly-owned Maine utility called Pine Tree Power. Tell me... Who first had that idea? Where did it first pop up? I know it was legislation and then it got vetoed. Just tell us a little bit about how we got to where we are now. The history is really interesting and I'll try to not spend too much time on it, but I think it's really important to start with the reality here in Maine as a backdrop. So a couple of things that are important to know for listeners is that we as Mainers find that our electricity isn't really affordable or reliable and our utilities aren't trustworthy. So we have, for many years running now, the worst customer satisfaction in the country, some of the highest rates in the country for electricity, and those just keep going up. We have experienced a 20% increase this summer with another increase coming in January. And we also have the most frequent outages in the country. And there are a couple other reliability metrics that we're not doing so well on including the length of outages and how long it takes to restore power. So basically, what we see here in Maine is that the status quo of these for-profit multinational corporations is just not working for us. About 10th of our residents in Maine received disconnection notices earlier this year because they just couldn't afford to pay their bills. 
And it's not working for companies or big corporations that really rely on low cost and reliable electricity to compete. So that's kind of the background. So a number of us were wondering, you know, does it have to be this way? Is there an alternative to, you know, worst of the worst? Uh, You know, we are Maine, we are very proud and independent, and we like to be leading, but this is not (laughs) the way that we wanted to be leading. Um, So there was a lot of grassroots pressure. In 2017, we had a big storm and the power was out for days. But at the same time, there was a billing fiasco, which um, resulted in billing errors for over 100,000 customers, which is, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a state of 1.3 million people, that's a very big percent. So there was a lot of pressure, a lot of phone calls to legislators, to the Public Utilities Commission, to the public advocate about these utilities. And so I think that really planted a seed for a number of folks, specifically Maine's first public advocate pointed out to some members of the legislature, including Representative Seth Barry at the time, myself and a few others, that there were other options and that the financial and local control aspects of those options might be really helpful for Maine. So we started meeting in 2019 with the previous public advocate, economists, labor, legislators, um, people that were part of a group called CMP Ratepayers Unite. And that's when we formed this idea of creating a consumer-owned utility for Maine that would be nonprofit and similar to the 10 other consumer-owned utilities we have in Maine. I don't know that we had a name for it at that time, but we do now call it the Pine Tree Power Company. So that were the early days. And then to sort of fast forward, the legislature commissioned a study which was done by London Economics International in 2019 to learn more about the uh, economics and also uh, legal pathway here. Then, of course, 2020, everybody knows what happened then. (laughs) Things kind of went on pause. And then in 2021, we wrote a bill and that bill passed in both chambers in Maine with bipartisan support. As you mentioned, the governor did veto that bill. And that bill was to create the utility or to put the question to voters? That bill put the question to voters, and it's very similar to the language that we'll be voting on this November. So we did revise the language based on some feedback from the governor, and that is the language that is now in front of us to vote on this November, November 7th. And in order to get the question on the ballot, we had hundreds of volunteers working together to collect around 80,000 signatures in total, which is um, a little bit above the requirement needed to get a question on the ballot in Maine. I'm a little curious why this is a Democratic governor, uh, Mills. What was her rationale? I mean, I guess I can imagine her rationale for opposing the public utility, but what was her rationale for opposing asking voters (laughs) (laughs) what they thought? Did she have a, a good rationale? Uh, Not in my opinion. Um, I'm sure in her opinion, it was great. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we read the veto letter. For the most part, there was very little in there that was substantive. Some of those minor changes that we made are all things that we would have happily made in advance had we had outreach from her office about them. Mm. But, you know, the unfortunate thing with governors in Maine is that we have yet to elect one that has campaigned using our clean elections publicly funding campaign option, which is something that most legislators use. 
So you can draw your own conclusions there about the <laughs> <laughs> money and politics uh, may have been at play. I can't say for certain. Yeah, this is we should just make a note here because, you know, a couple of, of podcasts we've done here on Volts are about state laws prohibiting utilities from using ratepayer money to lobby and pay off politicians. Maine does not have one of those laws. <laughs> so, Well, we actually did just pass a law. We were one of four states earlier this year to be sure that ratepayer dollars are not going for lobbying or, you know, industry membership, group memberships. Oh, interesting. You know, Edison Electric, for instance, Chambers of Commerce, et cetera. So that is a new law. It will be in effect in about a month. So we'll see if that improves things. Uh, just in time or actually yeah. <laughs> just a, t a smidge too late. So the bill of particulars here then against these two utilities, as you say, um, they have really low ratepayer satisfaction scores, lots of power outages, more than usual, um, higher rates, some of the highest rates in the country. Like every state, Maine has a public utility commission mm -hmm. that is uh, meant to regulate its utilities that has members appointed by the governor or elected. I'm not sure how it goes in Maine. In Maine, the commissioners are appointed and then subject to Senate uh, approval. Mm hmm. So why not just use the PUC to sort of get these utilities in line? That seems like it would be the sort of first order of <laughs> first order of business. It's a great question. I mean, I think everyone kind of wants to default to using the systems we have in place. But I have a couple thoughts about that. You know, our Public Utilities Commission, I do think, is full of folks who are, you know, hardworking and really trying to get under the hood with utilities, but there's a lot of information there that the utilities really understand best. And so when you have questions, you're going to ask the utilities and mm. there is sort of a long-term back and forth relationship there. Some people might call how that turns into regulatory capture sometimes. Mm -hmm. Additionally, you know, we do have the ability to find the utilities if they're not performing up to snuff. And that has happened it doesn't happen that often. And, you know, the most recent fine, I think, was around $10 million. At the same time, they had a significant rate increase and are pulling out, you know, over $100 million in profit every year. So it's not really proportional. <laughs> <laughs> and we could theoretically increase those fines a bit, but there is hesitance. I think the legislature has interest in doing some of that, but the utilities are, of course, not interested in I think we would see another veto pen action mm. <laughs> is my guess. But all that being said, you know, this effort to create a consumer and utility has led to a lot of us just digging down into what is the history of utilities in this country and regulation. And what we found is that utilities are natural monopolies. So it makes sense for there to be regulation because there isn't competition. But the folks who sort of started the effort to create public utilities commissions were those who were going to be regulated. And so there has been this hand-in-glove relationship since the start around <laughs> the regulators and the regulated. Yes, um, it's not ideal. That's probably a subject of a whole other <laughs> podcast, but... It doesn't work quite like you would want it to, let's exactly. just say. And additionally, I would say I was, I have recently, you know, been talking to folks in other states and other people have served as public advocates. And 
what I find remarkable is the backflips and cartwheels that we go through with regulation to try to outfox the utilities when, by no fault of their own, the investor-owned utilities are created with their number one mission to be maximizing repair profit. So it's like <laughs> we could keep trying to think of creative and clever ways to balance this out. But at the end of, of all of it, I keep coming back to the fact that, you know, we don't have our roads, which are critical to our economy and our safety and our way of life, you know, in the private sector and nor are our schools, nor is our military, you know, why does it make sense for something as important as our electricity grid to be subject to for-profit motivations? Listeners will be rolling their eyes right about now because this is <laughs> oh, no. something I say. I find a way to say it almost every episode, no matter, <laughs> no matter what we're talking about. But, you know, utilities, they are structured such that they make money insofar as they spend money. So all they really want to do is deploy more big infrastructure. And so, as you say, like PUCs find these elaborate Rube Goldberg mechanisms to sort of beg and plead with them to do things like efficiency or distributed energy or, you know, on and on, interregional transmission, name it, all of which are sort of just counter to the basic incentive. So, like, as you say, like, you can spend the rest of your life coming up with more and more elaborate ways to try to trick them into doing something against their interests. But like at a certain point, you just got to like grapple with the central issue, which is that they're set up wrong. <laughs> like they're set up <laughs> badly. They're set up to not want things that are in the public interest. And like at a certain point, you got to just like deal with the root cause. Anyway, sorry to go off on my standard canned rant there. <laughs> so then a skeptic will say, you know, th these two utilities, just so people are clear about this, are not, these are not vertically integrated utilities. These are just distribution utilities. They just have wires. They just distribute power. They do not own generation. They're dealing with, you know, a certain set of supply issues, a certain set of power plants, a certain geography. Mm -hmm. You know, Maine is very heavily forested, which is a nightmare for transmission lines for all the obvious reasons. So it's, it just has a sort of set of things that it's dealing with. And so I guess the skeptic's going to ask, what reason do we have to believe that given the sort of same resources that Pine Tree, a public utility, would perform any better? Well, I think we have a lot of evidence that it would because we already have uh, 10 consumer-owned utilities in Maine. Just for an example, there is one that's called Eastern Maine Electric Co-op. You know, that's a traditional co-op. It is more rural than most of Maine. You might find it interesting that it is serving about 1.2% of the state's load in kilowatt hours, but it is in an area that's twice the size of Rhode Island. <laughs> now, EMEC, which is in rural Down East Maine, is directly adjacent to the territory of Versant that I live in. And the cost for delivery in EMAC is $0.09. Cents, and the cost for delivery in Versant is $0.13.1 per kilowatt hour. So I don't think that's just some kind of magical <laughs> happenstance that when you take profit out of the equation, you're just paying less. Um, we know that together, CMP and Versant are sending out about, well, as last year was $187 million a year in profits. So I think if Mainers are in charge of our utility, we can decide, do we want to use that money 
to lower rates? Do we want to use it to reinvest in the grid mm -hmm. uh, to increase reliability? And I think it would probably be a mix of both of those things. And that amount of money you think is material enough that it would show up as improved performance, show up as measurably improved performance? I do think so. I mean, I think for your listeners, while Maine is large and rural, we do have 1.3 million people. So, you know, when you sort of divide those numbers out, it does make a difference. And, you know, we've had some independent economic analysis that shows us that Mainers would be saving, you know, on average $367 a month, excuse me, a year, because of the fact that we're basically going from expensive rent mm. for the grid to like a lower cost mortgage. So it's, <laughs> I think it's easy to explain it to folks in terms of like, what's better when you're looking for housing? dropping your money down a rent <laughs> hole, black hole for the rest of your life or swapping out to a mortgage where you've got a lower interest rate than what we see now uh, with the, the guaranteed return on equity that happens for our for-profit utilities. Yeah, this was the, another piece I wanted to ask about. So part of why you think this will be cheaper for ratepayers is just you take that huge slice of profits that are going, as you say, out of state to the owners of these utilities and keep that in state. And that alone will buy you some better service. Yep. But there's also the issue of, you know, investor owned utilities expect and want and are guaranteed relatively high rates of return on their investments and often resist making investments if the rate of return is lower than that. Mm -hmm. But as you say, a public power utility can be more patient with its capital, right? Can make investments with lower returns as, as long as they pay off eventually, right? Yeah, so we see here in Maine that the utilities are getting, you know, an ROE of eight to 12%. Yeah. Uh, and we know that, <laughs> firstly, that's kind of astounding because it's not all that risky. Most people it, are it paying is. their bills. It's crazy, <laughs> it's guaranteed. It's huge right. and it's guaranteed. It's wild. What it's, it is. It's like, it's like the safest business on the planet is being a regulated utility. Couldn't agree more. You know, and on the flip side, the Pine Tree Power Company can access low-cost capital through revenue bonding, you know, at 3 to 5%. So when we think about paying off that debt over many years with compounding interest, when we think about the fact that our grid really isn't ready to electrify our economy and, you know, experts expect it's going to need to be increased two to three times. Mm -hmm. Now is the right moment in time, I think, to move away from, you know, high cost, <laughs> low risk investment to low cost, low risk investment before we literally triple our grid. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about how the, the utility would be governed mm -hmm. or structured and what implications you think that might have. I love this question. Um, you know, I am a public servant. And so I believe in uh, local governance and people getting to vote and go to public meetings and have a say. Um, and all that is built into the ballot question. So the Pine Tree Power Company would have elected board members. And there are seven of them, um, one for each grouping of five Senate seats, state Senate seats. And those members then turn around and appoint six members who have specific expertise, you know, in things like utility, law and management, concerns of workers, concerns of economic, environmental and social justice, things like that, that we really want to make sure 
those folks are at the table. And, you know, this group of 13 people, they serve six-year terms, each of them. And of course, there's like a little bit of a <laughs> lead-in time because they'd all be elected at once where some of them served shorter terms at the start. But the point is, they are people in our communities. They have to be living in Maine. They have open meetings that are subject to freedom of access laws. Mm. And, you know, in order to best serve the public, I think they would be doing a lot of public outreach. And that's something that in talking to managers and board members from other consumer utilities in the country, I've been really impressed with how much local engagement they have. I think Sacramento Municipal Utility District, they said they're hosting 1,300 community meetings a year. Good grief. You know, a couple a day on average. <laughs> but they have, I think, I think they said 95% customer satisfaction. Mm. So people feel like they're valued, their experience matters, you know, and they also have a plan to get to 100% clean energy by 2030. So our Pine Tree Power governance is uh, very much in the spirit of it's a public good. It should be publicly governed. You know, there's a little bit of a controversy in Maine a few years ago. I don't remember all the details, but it was about a big transmission line that would have brought hydro from Canada down through the woods of Maine. Mm -hmm. It was fought and I believe killed by popular resistance. And there was a lot of, you know, at least nationally, there was a lot of talk of like, here again, we have environmentally minded locals blocking things for environmental reasons, but in a short-sighted way that's going to be worse for the environment overall in the long term. They're NIMBYs. We've got to figure out a way of dealing with this problem, et cetera, et cetera. So this leads to my question, which is, if you have a governing board that is elected by local people, and it is the local people who are often the source of the nimbyism, do you not have some fears that this would lead to a more nimby rather than less nimby operation of the utility, which is going to be difficult when, as you say, this is a time when every every state, everybody needs to be increasing and bolstering their transmission systems. Do you worry that local control is going to translate into more rather than less NIMBY opposition to new lines? I'll put it in a way that I think makes sense to me as a person in Maine, you know, who's intimately familiar with what you laid out, which is that at the root of that decision was a, a fundamental lack of trust in central Maine power, a trust that it would be doing anything in our best interest, that it would be giving us appropriate benefits, that it was really after anything more than profits. And so I think it's not, it wouldn't be true that as soon as Pine Tree Power was created, that everyone would immediately trust the company. But I do think it would be a fresh start. And on top of that, you know, with elected and appointed leaders, spending time in communities, and just energy literacy, I think, in general would increase because it's something we would be talking about more, you know, if we had to elect the board. I'll say I think that people's interest in energy policy has gone through the roof mm -hmm. <laughs> this year compared to where it was in the past. And people are asking just really great questions, a new curiosity around electricity that I hadn't seen before, you know, growing up here. So I think that the outcome would actually be that folks would feel like they had a say in how the transmission was cited, who it was benefiting, 
if we remove the profit motive, imagine if that money that would have gone to profit was actually going to community benefits. Mm -hmm. That might really change how people feel. And I think that here in Maine, we are sort of skeptical (laughs) Mm -hmm. of what's being pushed on us by um, people from away, quote unquote, (laughs) is a saying we have. I don't always love it, but it is (laughs) it is accurate in this case. You've got central Maine power owned by Avangrid, then owned by Ubedrola based in Spain telling us, oh, we've got this great deal for you. And people are skeptical of that. So I think we have a greater chance actually of doing transmission right and in a way that people can accept if there was this broader community process and a lack of for-profit skepticism that that comes naturally to us here. One of the criticisms of the two existing utilities is that they're kind of slow walking clean energy in particular. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could just say a word about what that means and why and how we think pine tree would be better on that score. Because it's not, it's not obvious. These are just wires utilities, right? So they're not Mm -hmm. dealing directly with clean energy generation. So what are the issues around clean energy and, and how will pine tree be an improvement? So just historically, we have seen that the utilities uh, do spend a lot of time and money in the state house, not just behind the scenes, but also right out publicly testifying against clean energy bills. Now that has slowed in recent years, but certainly in the previous uh, gubernatorial administration, that was very common practice. If I could just pause there, I guess I just don't fully understand why. Like if you're a Mm. company that's just running wires... What's it to you, right? <laughs> well, like, let's why? go back to the return on equity question. So these utilities make more money when they build transmission lines than when they upgrade the distribution system. They get a higher rate of return. Right. So it is in their best interest to continue with the model of large, far-off generation facilities right. compared to local you know, rooftop solar type solutions or microgrids or battery storage. So that's the first part of the problem, I think. And secondly, I, I, you know, I think some of these utilities just really are not very nimble. They're sort of in the business that they've been in for a long time and thinking about how to create a dynamic grid that has time of use rates that actually work, um, right. for instance, or bi-directional power. Yeah. You know, we have had smart meters in this state for over a decade, and I can't see how they're being used in any kind of smart <laughs> way. I mean, people are still calling the utilities to let them know the power's out. It's just baffling to me. Like, if I'm in the utility business, like, this is like my time to be a hero. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, after, after 100 years of sleepy operation in the background, all of a sudden... The world is calling upon me to like be cutting edge and be the hero and save the world. And instead, I'm just going to like, eh, <laughs> I just want to keep doing things the way I've been doing. I don't know. People are disappointing. Uh, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I read in one of the stories about this, one of the opponents of this measure said, quote, the people behind this proposal have no actual plan to lower rates, improve reliability, and enable a swifter energy transition. So the implication being that like the fans of this measure just think that making the utility public is going to be sort of auto magically make everything easier and cleaner and cheaper, but there's no actual plan to do so. Is there a specific plan for how Pine Tree would operate and how it would do these things? Has anyone modeled out sort of, you know what I mean? Is there more than just hope that the structure will do the work for you? 
Well, you know, I think the the person who said that spent some time cherry picking <laughs> certain things in the ballot language, but missed the bigger picture here, which is we have to start by saying yes on November 7th. And then at that time, then we have an election for the board of directors and it, it goes on from there. But until that time, the main public utilities commission cannot compel the utilities to give over their very private data mm. to do that kind of in-depth modeling that is going to be the very next task for the Pine Tree Power Board once it exists. And that is spelled out in the ballot question language. Additionally, you know, these utilities, I'm just going to be level about it. They don't have a plan either. <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell you that because... The legislature last year had to pass a law requiring them to do integrated grid planning and think about how is it going to work to increase renewables on the grid to increase demand um, as people install more heat pumps and use electric vehicles. Um, you know, they're not doing that, or if they are doing it, they're not doing it in any kind of way that is transparent or subject to review. So I think it's like a great bait and switch uh, <laughs> tactic. Aren't they supposed to create integrated resource plans? I thought that was something that all utilities had to do. Um, you know, I think they have some planning, but it is clear from the way that the interconnection queues are looking, the very high cost they're pushing on to developers for even just what turns out to be basic grid maintenance. There isn't really... And maybe they have something that says plan at the top, <laughs> but I'm not sure that, that all the nuts and bolts are actually there. Yeah, well, I meant to hit on interconnection before because that's one of the critiques also is that they are slow walking interconnection of distributed resources, etc. Presumably they're doing that, or at least they say they're doing that to protect the grid. Do we have reason to believe they're slow walking that on purpose such that Pine Tree could substantially speed up the interconnection queue? We do have reason to believe that specifically because of all the complaints that we've received, you know, as legislators, uh, we did ask the Public Utilities Commission to look into this and they hired the Interstate Renewable Energy Council or IREC to do a study. And, you know, the IREC findings were basically, especially around Versant, which is in, you know, Eastern and Northern Maine, these guys are some of the worst actors we've ever seen in the United States. Mm. They are requiring things that they can't justify why they're requiring them. And we can find no reason <laughs> from an engineering perspective to require them. And your listeners might find it fascinating to know that for Versant customers, the average cost of interconnecting your rooftop solar to the grid is $10,000. That is not not normal <laughs> is what I'm told. Um, another great story that I've heard from a couple constituents is that they need a transformer upgrade to interconnect their rooftop solar. Okay, that that might be true. Um, and that upgrade's going to cost you, you know, thousand fifteen hundred dollars, but we can't get the parts for two years. Oh my goodness. Now, the same solar installers that are working in my area are also working in CMP's area, Central Maine Power, <laughs> because I live, uh, my district includes both. And the installers are saying, you know, CMP says they can get it in two months. <laughs> so then I asked my constituents, you know, can you file a formal complaint at the PUC using this process we had to create? Because <laughs> this is such a rampant issue. 
And when they do that and go through the whole process, then that transformer has arrived and been installed within two to three months time. So I don't know what to say about it. I can only say <laughs> what I see from the outside and the experience that I have heard about from, you know, people that pick up the phone and call me, but it seems shady <laughs> <laughs> to go from two years to two months. Let's grapple here with what is probably the biggest and most difficult issue around all this, which is say main voters say yes to this and it goes forward. Basically, it would involve the state of Maine buying these two utilities assets from the utilities. And depending on who you believe, <laughs> those assets are worth anywhere from five to I think CMP is now saying it could get up to $13 billion. So that's a big public expense. So how's that going to get financed? Who's going to pay it? How long is it going to take to pay it? Have, have we thought through in any detail how that process works? Yes, definitely. And that was a big part of what the London economics analysis included was that legal analysis of what that purchase price process would look like. We also have been able to look at this transition as has happened in other communities in the country. And we created an expedited and refereed process to determine the purchase price. And all told from this fall to, you know, switch over to Pine Tree Power, we expect it to take three to four years. You know, what we know from the LEI study is that this is a completely legal and constitutional effort. You know, it's helpful to remind folks that because these are actual monopolies, they only have the right to be doing business because we give it to them. And in the main statutes, it literally says the PUC can take it away. Yeah, I mean, of course it can. This drives me crazy. You know, I'm reading, I'm reading articles about this. And of course, like, you know, just once I'd like there to be like a, a good argument had in public instead of like, idiots. But, you know, all, all the Republicans are now saying, like, this is a communist takeover of private business by the state. It's communist. Why don't we call it Chinese electricity? <laughs> I've read, I've read wow. some of the dumbest <laughs> quotes. Are you in the comments section? <laughs> <laughs> no, these are legislators. This is not even, oh dear. I mean, there's barely a distinction anymore. But like the Republican legislators are saying this now. So, you know, it's worth just emphasizing the point that you just made is sort of drawing a line under it, which is these businesses have been granted a monopoly by the state and granted guaranteed returns by the state. So of course the state can take that back. Like, of course this is legal. Like if the state grants, the state can take away. If the state is granting it on the grounds that it will be of service to the state's residents and it's not anymore, then of course the state can take that monopoly back. It's just crazy viewing. The, it's not like Maine is going to go take over the potato chip industry. You know, it, it, <laughs> no, it's, we have no interest in that. <laughs> this is not a normal business. Utilities are not normal private businesses. They are state, basically state created entities. And so, mm -hmm. of course, the state can uncreate them if it wants to. Sorry, that's just, I know that will not have any effect at all on the dumb things Republicans say about this, but. Well, I do want to clarify, we do have some really strong Republican support from certain legislators as mm. well as just regular folks. I mean, that was the greatest thing about 
collecting signatures for this initiative, which I did and my family did and many other people I know, was that when you remove it from a debate in a state house, regular people just get it. Mm. <laughs> they get that this is really important to our economy to have an electricity grid that works for us and for our health and safety. And they also understand that, you know, maybe this is not a place for profits. And I've had folks wearing Birkenstocks and folks wearing MAGA hats sign the petition. <laughs> because, you know, I think Maine people are really resilient. You know, we are proud of our our ability to solve problems. And I think the majority of us believe this is something that we can do and that we probably could do it better than some far off foreign monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I interrupted you. You no were talking problem. about how, how these giant bills are going to get paid, basically. You say it's going to take about four years to do all the work to mm-hmm. transfer everything over. Would the five billion or however much it turns out to be be paid off over those four years or or how will it be financed? No. So, you know, we did meet with some municipal bond banks. Um, this sort of acquisition, uh, like in the case of Long Island, has been paid off over a long period of time. And that's how we're able to see the rate reduction. You know, again, similar to renting versus owning, you know, I was able to buy a home. My mortgage is less than my rent would be, but I am still paying it off. Right. And even with the, you know, the interest, it's still less. <laughs> So we have the ability through revenue bonding to borrow that money, you know, backed by the ratepayers, not actually by the state government and the general fund, but by the ratepayers. You know, we have the ability to borrow that money and then pay it off over time and borrow more as we need to, you know, build out the grid. Would it being a public utility enable it to draw on state money? Because one of the points, you know, a few a few pods ago, we were talking about a new offshore wind bill that would draw money from state coffers rather than from ratepayers and one of the sort of you know arguments in defense of that is taking tax money from state taxpayers is much more progressive than mm. taking it from ratepayers basically you're getting a much more progressive source of funding is there any talk of of pine tree being able to draw on state money or would it still just operate as a utility and get all its money and, and revenue and stuff from ratepayers the same way a private utility would? The enabling statute has it separate. I think that that is really important, especially to our union workers, because they had concerns about becoming public sector workers mm. um, and what that would mean for their right to strike, for instance. Mm. So we have ensured that they are private sector workers. Oh, interesting. Whether or not a future legislature might say we're able to maintain that and have the utility doing efficiency programs that are paid, you know, through the taxpayer dollars versus ratepayer dollars, you know, I can't predict. To your point about like regressivity, one of the things that is required in the bill language for the Pine Tree Power Company is to establish lower rates for low-income residential customers mm. in the first five-year plan. So, you know, we are trying to address that challenge that you're absolutely correct. It's the regressive funding structure, unlike, you know, taxation. Also, you know, one of the criticisms of these utilities is that they're sending all these cutoff notices. They're cutting off people from power, which is bad for, for all obvious reasons. But is Pine Tree going to pledge not to do that. And if it doesn't do that, where does that money to cover Mm. those people's rates come from? Because that would seem like an additional expense because whatever you might say about cutting people off, it does save the utilities money. Right. Well, we do have what's called the arrearage management program here in Maine, and that does help 
folks get out of arrears, and that is ratepayer-funded programs. So that is a somewhat fiscally progressive approach to that. And and you know the details of that program are probably more than you'd want to know. But the long and short is, if you get back on track, then some of your debt will be just forgiven. But you know it's not forgiven by the utilities; it's forgiven by your neighbors. Right. Well, would Pine Tree pledge not to cut people off? Like, is that part of the campaign here, or or how would it treat cutoffs differently? You know, it's a good question that surprisingly I don't know if anyone has posed to me. It is not in the legislation one way or the other. I'm of the belief that if rates go down and we could have rates that were income stratified to some extent, that the amount of disconnection notices that we saw earlier this year would go way down just economically. But I I think it would be really a decision of the board. Uh, And then I'm also not sure if the Public Utilities Commission, if there are any rules on the books. Because this utility, unlike a lot of consumer utilities in the country, is regulated by the Public Utilities Commission as if it were an investor-owned utility. So there may be specific rules about that already. Yeah. I would just think, though, if you're trying to sell this, making this public rather than private, one of the things you could sell is like, we think this is a public right to have electricity on some level. Mm-hmm. The one other thing about it that just comes to mind is that a couple of years ago during COVID, you know, people were especially concerned about the disconnection notices, you know, not knowing if they were going to be receiving a, a next paycheck. But we were told that the disconnection notices were necessary in order to provide certain assistance. Hmm. So, you know, the utility said, oh, don't worry, we're not actually going to disconnect anyone, but we have to do this to get them into this next hmm. program. So I, I don't know if that's would come into play here, but I'm not convinced that the utilities wouldn't have ultimately <laughs> shut the people off, but that was a way that they spun it, at least. One more kind of semi-technical question that's a little bit of a side thing, but is of, of interest, I think, to Volt's listeners, one of the provisions in the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, is that it makes some of the tax credits direct pay, Mm -hmm. which means you don't have to pay taxes to get it back. You can get it back directly as a check. And one of the categories of entities that would be qualified for this is tax-exempt entities. So I wonder, has anyone done any thinking, and maybe this is too in the weeds, but done any thinking about what advantage it might pose for Maine to have its utility be tax-exempt, whether it will benefit from the IRA through that? It is something we're thinking about because we were excited to see that direct pay provision sort of leveling the playing field, you know, for publicly owned generation, which is another topic (laughs) I'm very interested in. But You know, I think it remains to be seen in the case of Pine Tree Power, it is not allowed to own generation um, and it it may be permitted to own some storage as is necessary to maintain the the grid functioning. So I'm not entirely sure that that direct IRA provision would help in this case. But what I think it does is sort of change the paradigm a bit there that may then also shift to other things. You know, if the federal government says, you know, let's have a an ITC or PTC for transmission lines. Yes. You know, the next step might be... <laughs> Praise be. Um, well, let's make sure we set it up the same way we've just done with generation. So yes. I think it's a really important conversation, even if it doesn't have a 
you know, direct immediate effect on, on the Pine Tree Power Company. Interesting. You know, as I think anyone could predict, just from what we've said so far, even knowing nothing else about it, but what we've said so far, I'm sure people could predict that the private utilities in question are not excited about this happening <laughs> and have mobilized to prevent it from happening. So tell us a little bit about the campaign against this. Is it as hysterical as one would <laughs> predict? Uh, yeah, I mean, hysterical is one word for it. Deeply <laughs> troubling is another phrase that comes to mind. But, you know, these are utilities, like I mentioned, about the amount of profit that they make. And that's just off of, you know, their central main power and Versen holdings. But central main power is just a small, small fraction of the entire Ibadrola conglomerate. So, yeah, we have seen them spending a lot of money against the campaign. They've put $27 million toward the campaign, both utilities, as of the end of June. So we expect to see more, of course. Not a, not a small amount in a no, small state. No. And, I, you know, honestly, talking to my neighbors, uh, people are very, they're upset by it. They're kind of irate that, you know, they're the people whose power goes out and doesn't come back on for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. They're the folks who had to spend $10,000 for a generator, you know, which isn't part of a clean energy solution <laughs> last I checked. <laughs> You know, and there and there go the utilities putting $27 million toward just running ads. Yeah, I mean, are they experiencing it as a flood of ads? I mean, $27 million must allow you to kind of dominate the airwaves. And Yes, they are. The airwaves are definitely uh, bought up as far <laughs> as we can tell. Um, you know, and they, they have just their two donors, which are the utility parent companies, which are, you know, Avangrid and NMAX. Are they funding 100% of this? 100%, huh. yes. <laughs> And these utilities, you know, lest they tell you how amazing and green and climate friendly they are, you know, they are gas utilities, Avangrid and Edmax. So anyhow, and then on the flip side, you know, we are a smaller organization. We don't have Mainer's uh, pockets to pickpocket <laughs> on a regular yeah, basis. Yeah, I'm guessing you guys haven't hit 27 million yet. No. What, how much money have you have you we're, spent? We're closer to around a million, I think. Um, and that's, <laughs> you know, over a thousand donors, most of whom are just regular donors giving what they can because they, you know, they understand these differences. And also I think the big difference is the utilities are putting out a lot of, you know, fear, doubt, scare tactic type ads. And on the flip side, what we're offering people is something different and something positive, right. something that we can all lean into and make sure that it succeeds because it would actually be ours. So I, I think that's resonating with folks. What what are they? What are the scare tactics specifically? Are they saying this will be expensive or or what? Yeah, expensive. I mean, you you quoted some of their numbers, and it's laughable. They they're like, oh, we're going to get thirteen point five billion dollars. Well, you know, they're worth five point four billion dollars. That's what they pay taxes on. That's what they filed <laughs> their official paperwork saying. So I think, especially as we learn more and more about how decrepit certain portions of this grid are, you know, they'd be lucky to get, you know, a little bit over that. So that's one of them. The, is there a plan? You know, we don't have a plan, but do they have a plan <laughs> is another one. Um, you know what? A lot of it is just to my sensibility is a little insulting to me and people, you know, you don't know what you're doing, that kind of thing. You know, meanwhile, we are going to 
we're going to keep the line workers who are doing the work and we're giving them a retention bonus because we value their expertise because they're the ones <laughs> that actually know how the grids work, not the CEOs and the CFOs. Yeah, it is historically pretty easy, though, just to, I mean, when you're fighting against change, mm -hmm. you barely even need uh, <laughs> arguments. You know what I mean? You can just say, booga, 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 change, <laughs> and uh, you're halfway there, it seems like. Well, I think that's why we're in such a unique position in Maine, because, you know, while that can be kind of an initial gut reaction, I think people here are curious. We've certainly seen plenty of campaigns where one side was outspent a lot by the other and it didn't make a difference. We have led in other policy areas, you know, ranked choice voting could be one recent example, clean elections, you know, one of the only states that splits our electoral college votes. So I think Maine people... You know, I think I think we're interested in things that are different if they make sense to us. Where is the public on this? Do we know? How do we have enough polling or, or survey data or what have you to know kind of what the level of support is or where the public is on this? Do we have a barometer? Do we have a, a measure here? Yeah, I think um, the most recent public polling was probably a couple months ago. But what it showed was, you know, there were people that were solidly in each camp, but a lot of undecided voters. And it, mm. it really put us in a dead heat um, in terms of the people that were decided. And what I think is interesting is <laughs> folks are not being swayed by central main power in Versant's ads, you know, mainly because we don't trust them. Mm. They have <laughs> not been good faith actors for a long time now. Are they creating fake groups like, uh, you know, yes. Mainers for puppy dogs and, uh, yeah. and grandma? Yes, main affordable energy is one of them. Um, yeah, so they sound pretty good. But um, y all you have to do is Google that and you find out pretty quickly because of our disclosure rules, like that's 100% utility funded. Mm. To the extent that the public supports this, are they viewing it as primarily a green thing, a thing about clean energy, or is it primarily a like screw these out of state, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a, a main pride kind of thing? Is it a reliability? Do you know what it is about this that the public has taken from it? What it is the public is supporting when the public supports it? That's a great question. And, and it does vary, you know, depending on the person and their interest and maybe even where they live in the state because, you know, the utility rates are they're the worst where I live compared to all the other districts in the state. So, you know, it depends. I think if you're a person who tried to interconnect and you got told you have to wait two years and $10,000, then it might be about greening the grid. But I think for a lot of folks underlying whatever their specific reason might be, it is that question of trust. I think about this all the time. You know, we have aggressive clean electricity goals, but 50% of our carbon emissions in this state are coming from vehicles. And, you know, we are the most heating oil dependent state in the country. So, you know, we've got to get people onto the electricity grid in order to have any hope of, right. of cleaning it up. But it's really hard for me to knock on someone's door and say, you know, I really hope you'll consider changing your whole house over to heat pumps, <laughs> even though we have below zero temperatures sometimes. Or, you know, I know that the power went out for a week last year, but, you know, would you consider an EV? So I think that in order to make this transition work, we have to have utilities that people trust and that are providing just basic service. You know, 
people should not have to think as hard as they're thinking about if their electricity is going to be there for them. Yes, that's such an important point and so generalizable too. Like if electrification is the thing, then people have got to trust <laughs> the institutions yeah. in charge of electrification and those they do not have uh, much public trust these days. So that's an interesting uh, uh, argument in favor, I think, of, of, of making utilities more accountable, more public. What about the other big argument against one? You know, sort of one of the one of the big scare things is you have to buy all these assets, which is like a big bill, a big one-time bill. The other scare story is that utilities are going to immediately sue that this is going to get mired in the courts, and that it's going to take four, five, six, seven years to even get it all settled. And until then it will be chaos and no one will know what's going on <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. So what is realistically, what's your view of, say voters approve this in November, what is your view of sort of how that plays out and when and how the inevitable legal wrangling gets resolved? Basically the Pine Tree Power Board will, you know, offer a certain amount for the utility infrastructure. I don't expect that the utilities will accept that on first pass. I mean, they would be, mm. you know, you're buying a used car, you don't just take the first <laughs> price, right? So, you know, we would expect some negotiation, but if, if that doesn't work, then it will go to the courts. And there is a refereed process that's spelled out in the legislation in the Superior Court that then can be appealed to the Supreme Court in the state of Maine, but there are timelines set up. So it, it just, it cannot go on for years and years and years. Um, because, you know, at some point, if you lose or win a case, that's, that's it. You have one appeal, you know? Um, yeah, I think it's funny that this argument is coming from the utilities because if there are any lawsuits and if it got, you know, dragged out, as they say, even though we've protected against that to the best of our ability, like that's coming from them. That is a choice that they are making. <laughs> Don't make us do this. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's kind of ironic. But additionally, one of the things that comes up is, well, how do we know the utilities will continue to invest in the meantime? And it's like, mm. you know, the best parallel I could say to that is if I'm going to sell my house, I don't just like stop <laughs> fixing things before I, I sell know. it. You know, I keep it up in really good shape. And in fact, utilities would have an incentive to invest more because usually they don't just sell it for exactly what it's worth. There's usually a multiplier. We expect it to be like 1.5 times. So we actually have increased the oversight capacity of the Public Utilities Commission to ensure that there isn't any of that sort of last minute gold plating going on. Um, because that is actually what we'd expect, not the further disrepair scenario. Oh, so you think if this goes through, they'll plow a bunch of money into high dollar upgrades just to boost their price that you have to pay for them? That's what I would do if I were them. <laughs> you know, fortunately, we're going to keep an eye on that for on behalf of Maine people. But you know, if you are able to invest a million dollars here and in two to three years time, make $1.5 million, because that's the multiplier that the courts assign, like, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So what's your timeline in your head, then? How do you, like, what do you envision? Like, at, at what point is there just the one public utility operating, and all this is behind us? Do you, are you willing to predict? Yeah, we're looking at fall 2027, so four years from now, and that includes having the elections for the board members next year. So, you know, that's the first major hurdle 
which I think is, I think is exciting, especially because, you know, living in one of the more rural parts of Maine, we don't always feel here that our interests are represented at the Public Utilities Commission, um, which is folks from Southern Maine. And I think this geographic component is really compelling to people. But, you know, so that's our first step. And then basically we have to get a lot of information. I mean, the board would have to get a lot of information from the utilities in order to know what purchase price they should put forward, what's the business plan, what does the revenue bonding look like, you know, and make sure they can secure that financing, you know, through a large uh, municipal bond market. So, you know, that takes time and we want to make sure we do it right. On the other hand, doing nothing uh, is (laughs) also a risk that I think sets people in my generation and folks younger than me behind economically and environmentally for decades. So couple years to do it right is definitely worth it. Okay. Final question then. You know, I can see lots of main specific reasons why one might argue that this is a good deal. You know, these utilities are particularly bad. You know, Maine has a particular set of problems. It has a particular sort of public culture, a culture of participation and a culture of sort of civic engagement, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of, lots of main specific reasons why you could make the case for this. I wonder to what extent are y'all, do y'all have your eyes on other states and trying to make this, you know, the beginning of something bigger? Like, do you believe that taking private utilities public is a good idea across the board? Is that something you'd like to see become a national trend or are you just purely focused on Maine? What are you, how do you think about the influence this may or may not have on other states? I think that all the issues we've had in Maine are what led us to looking around for solutions, but it is a structural imbalance that we have with the you know regulated monopolies when they're for profit. So I do think it is something that is exportable to other states. You know, we people in our coalition have been working with and talking to people elsewhere in the country who are looking to make a similar transition. Also elsewhere in the world. It's kind of interesting. Uh, their Scottish power is also owned by Avangrid, mm. which owns Central Maine Power. And they are looking to become a public, truly public utility over there. So in doing this work, we've found a lot of interest you know, for that business model change. And I think, you know, as we become another case study, you know, we are standing on the shoulders of other case studies that have happened in this country. And as we become another one for folks, I think that we'll see some opportunities arise. And, you know, I would like to see that because I want every American to be able to afford their electricity and to be able to have clean energy and not a lot of hurdles to getting there because we are literally all in this together (laughs) Uh, as a country and as you know, a world with our climate crisis. That seems like a wonderful note to wrap up on. Uh, Nicole Grohowski, thanks so much for coming on and walking through this with us. It's super fascinating. And I, I think it will be a, an example to the rest of the country one way or the other, uh, however it plays out. So <laughs> we're hoping that we're a positive yes example. That's, <laughs> that's, we're working every day toward that. And I want to thank you, David, for having me on and talking about this topic, which is... I think, endlessly important and fascinating. Agreed, agreed. Okay, thanks, Nicole. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. 
If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.